Rathbone's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Tonight we're talking about the future of brands and consumerism with advertising commentator Rory Sutherland. Rory is vice chairman of the leading advertising agency Ogilvy. Apart from spending 30 years in the ad business, he's a globally sought-after speaker, TED Talk superstar and best-selling writer. His latest book is Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas which don't make sense. Rory, welcome. Thank you very much. Rory, you argue that while we think we're rational creatures making these decisions based on evidence and logic, we're not and we don't. So what are we making our decisions based on? Uh, Largely on instinct. If you think about it in evolutionary terms, every single living organism on the planet manages to survive and reproduce without having a faculty of reason. We're the anomaly there. It looks increasingly as though our faculty of reason evolved not, in fact, to inform our decisions, at least not originally. It evolved, actually, to enable us to defend our decisions, to argue our case, and to defend ourselves in a social setting. So it's really more there as a kind of inbuilt, in-house lawyer for your brain than it is an in-house scientist. In your book, I love the quote where you said that the human mind does not run on logic any more than a horse runs on petrol. And I wonder if the fact that we don't make rational choices is what makes advertising so powerful. To a great extent, what we're doing when we see an advertisement is we're deriving a lot of inferences, uh, not only from the content of the advertisement, but from the fact that the company is advertising at all. Generally, a company would only spend a lot of money up front to promote a product if it had confidence in that product. Now, I think we feel more confident buying from people who advertise than from people who don't. But I don't think we ever consciously go through that logical process of working out why that is. I think it's something we feel rather than something we think. Yes, in retrospect, we can nearly always find a logical reason to explain everything. That doesn't mean, however, that it was that logical reason that spurred the behaviour in the first place. So one of the examples I give in the book is toothpaste. If you ask people, certainly adults, why do you clean your teeth? They would answer for dental health purposes, to prevent cavities, tooth decay, and for gum health. All perfectly plausible. No one's going to be told, you're an idiot. What a stupid reason for cleaning your teeth. Because it's a very good reason for cleaning your teeth. If you look, however, at how people clean their teeth and when, what you'll notice is that they'll always clean their teeth first thing in the morning. They'll always clean their teeth before a date. Will they clean their teeth after lunch? Probably not. Now, if it were genuinely dental health that were motivating us exclusively, you'd see a very different pattern of behaviour. What you'd also see is that most toothpaste wouldn't be flavoured with mint. So the very fact that 98% of toothpaste seems to be mint-flavoured is a pretty strong clue that breath freshness and fear of bad breath is actually a greater driver than what you might call the post-rationalised reasons around dental health. Now, by the way, the dental health is a side benefit. It's not irrelevant, but I don't think it's the principal reason why people do what they do. You also talk, I think, about having stripes in toothpaste. Yeah. What kind of basic instinct is that appealing to? It fascinated me because when stripey toothpaste emerged, lots and lots of people discussed how on earth do they keep the stripes separate (laughs) within the tube. What nobody asked, which in a way was the more interesting question, which was, why bother having stripy toothpaste at all? Since as soon as you put it into your mouth, the active ingredients are all mixed together anyway. So what was the point of keeping it separate in the tube? And I think the reason is that unconsciously through inference, we see any product that contains multiple separate ingredients 
as being more efficacious than one that's a simple monotone colour. A simple analogy to that might be if you buy those expensive dishwasher tablets which have two different forms of powder inside and a gel and a little red ball, we will automatically without actually consciously thinking about it, assume that's a more potent product than one that's simply a powder all of the same colour. I mean, something as simple as putting flex in washing powder makes us feel that it's more effective. Is this something that's just kind of lucky for your industry, that we really base what we buy on not very logical things and more on instinct? Because if we were really rational creatures, would it be harder for the advertising industry to work? I think what's at the heart of a lot of this... What's interesting is that I think economists, people who claim to be logical, most of us ourselves, when we introspectively look at why we're doing something and what we're trying to do, all of those categories of people are kind of wrong. In that we assume what we're trying to do is to optimise something. Let's say we go out to buy a television. We assume that obviously what a logical person would want to do is to buy the best television possible, the largest television possible for, let's say, a budget of £800. What we end up doing is we buy a slightly smaller television because it's got the Samsung or the Philips or the LG name on it. And we could have a larger television branded by someone we've never heard of, but we don't. And the question is why? In evolutionary terms, when you make a decision under uncertain conditions, you've in fact got to consider two separate things. What's the average outcome likely to be? And what's the downside variance? In other words, is there a small but significant chance that the television turns out to be a disaster? One of the reasons why McDonald's is the most successful restaurant chain in the world is not because it's very, very good. You wouldn't take someone there on a date. But one thing McDonald's is very, very good at is not being terrible. You're not disappointed. You're not ripped off. Generally, all the food's palatable and you never get ill. If you think of our evolutionary decision-making as distinct from what you might call the post-rationalising module of the brain, a large part of that module is saying, well, I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of what you might call excellence or optimization in exchange to actually minimise the risk of botulism. And that would apply to a food choice, but the same thing would apply to a television choice. And I would argue that In fact, consumers aren't being irrational when they pay a premium for brands. They're simply factoring in unconsciously a second but very, very important variable. I think we do that when we get married and when we choose a house. I think we ask two questions, actually. How good is this decision overall? But also, is there a risk that this decision turns into a catastrophe? Is there a risk of botulism? Is there a risk of botulism (laughs) or whatever the marital equivalent of botulism might be? I think we're right to consider those two things. I think every decision involves trade-off between bias and variance. Strangely, I think it's not a case of us being irrational. I think it's a case of evolution being cleverer than us. You also argue the case for magic, which perhaps is at the other end of this scale. I know we could all do with a bit more magic in our lives, but in terms of advertising, where does that magic come from? What I think is important about human emotion is that Economists and other people who are trying to model human behaviour on physics. Now, it's very fair to say that a few areas of science have proven themselves very, very successful indeed through essentially creating completely magic-free, objective models for the world, which have very strong predictive value. And if you like, the first rule of physics is no magic allowed. If you assume, as an economist might, that the only way of improving a product is to make the product objectively better or to reduce the price, what you're doing is you're imposing huge creative limitations on how you solve the problem. And I think government, in its disproportionate deference to 
economists has failed to understand many of the psychological tricks that it could play, which might be inexpensive, but nevertheless really, really decisive. So in human emotion, there are a lot of butterfly effects. The very simplest example I might give is if you let someone out of a side turning into traffic, your emotional state 10 seconds later is entirely dependent on whether they wave to say thank you or whether they <laughs> Indeed. don't. You know, the fact that someone flashes their hazard warning lights or gives a wave doesn't materially affect your life, but it does materially affect your mood. In the one case, the unacknowledged act of generosity makes you cross. In the other case, you're happier than before you performed it. Have you noticed that when you pay your tax at the end of the year, the government never writes and says thank you? I think emphatically that for the cost of a stamp, that would be a worthwhile thing to do. Because in physics, what we're trying to do is we're trying to actually change the state of physical objects, and physical objects behave in a predictable and proportionate way. If the object of any activity is to change either human emotion or human behaviour, the rules are completely different. The same thing in a different context or with expectations set differently, can be brilliant or terrible. This brings me to the little story of the bus from the plane to the airport. We've all had the experience, you land at an airport, about sort of half a mile before the plane reaches the terminal, you hear the engine stop and wind down. Everybody on the plane has the same thought. We're expecting a nice posh air bridge, and we're being fobbed off with a bus. And one day we had a pilot, very cleverly, he said, I've got some bad news and some good news. He wasn't trying to dress it up as perfection, but he was just helping us think about it differently. And he said, the bad news is I won't be able to get you an air bridge because there's a plane blocking the gate. Um, the good news is that the bus will take you all the way to passport control so you won't have very far to walk with your bags. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my companion and thought, hold on a second. Weird, but that's always true, isn't it? In fact, I'm quite glad there's a bus. I had quite heavy hand baggage. I didn't want to walk past 20 Toblerone displays just to get to passport control. And I suddenly saw the bus not as an inconvenience, I saw it as a conveyance. One of the great things of alchemy is the same thing can be good or bad entirely depending on the context in which you present it. So, for example, not far from here in Chinatown, there's a Chinese restaurant which is famous and indeed <laughs> successful because it's famous for being for the being rudest rude. restaurant in London. Mm. Okay. Now, normally, rudeness in a restaurant is a bad thing. Generally, we'd say, I don't like that restaurant. It's very, very rude. If, on the other hand, you turn the rudeness from being a downside into a source of entertainment, the very same thing which would be appalling in another setting actually becomes enjoyable. One of the really important things which makes psychophysics, as I'd call it, different from physics is that in physics, the opposite of a good idea is wrong. But in psychology, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Tell me, Rory, you are a behavioural economist. I'm not really. Okay. That, that, I play one on television. Okay, so yeah. that's, a, that's a title that yeah. I think for a, a lot of people just have got no idea what behavioural economics <laughs> no. is. So can you just explain a little bit about what is behavioural uh, economics? To be honest... How, all, do you, how, all, do you, how do you manage to call yourself All one? economics should be behavioural economics because... As I think Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, said, you know, if economics isn't behavioural, I don't know what the hell is. But insanely, um, whereas the early economists tended to write in words, Adam Smith was really a social scientist in the widest sense who also covered 
economic matters. Well, all economists were originally called were originally, social economists, essentially, weren't they? Yeah, of course, yeah. And you can actually date it back, actually. People in the Middle East, for example, uh, Ibn Khaldun was to some extent a social scientist and economist. Uh, that would have been in, what, the 14th century. So you're absolutely right. And then what happened is the mathematicians, or rather the sort of second-rate mathematicians, to some degree hijacked the discipline. And they tried to turn it into a branch of physics. One of the effects of that, I think, was it hugely over-masculinized the discipline. I think it made the discipline, to some degree, aspergic, in that the social and psychological things were actually left out and assumed away for the purpose of mathematical neatness. But what it did, essentially, was it also created a very strange discipline where theory was more important than observation. So in physics, you know, if you consistently observed a behaviour of, say, a heavenly body, to give a simple example, or one of the moons of Saturn, and you suddenly noticed that the behaviour seemed to conflict with the expected laws of physics, you'd investigate it and ask why. In economics, anything that didn't conform to their particular theory could be dismissed as irrationality. Now, when you think about it, that's the biggest scientific cheat in the history of any kind of half-respectable science. Because if you're a physicist, you come up with a theory, and your theory completely fails to be borne out in observation. You can't say, ah, but the theory's still good, it's all the fault of these pervy electrons. That would be a really weird form of physics. But in economics, bizarrely, behaviours that completely conflict with theory are just put down to human irrationality and essentially brushed aside. I'll give, you, I'll give you a few examples, I think, where if you have something which is attempting to be a consistent context-free theory, where in different situations people can behave in completely opposite ways, I think what you're attempting to do is fundamentally flawed. So an example I'd give is if you looked at the crude oil market, okay, I think I'd be fairly confident in saying that the crude oil market would behave pretty much as economists would predict. So that if oil prices go up, those people sitting on especially large reserves will start selling more and therefore the price will to some degree stabilise. On the other hand, the London property market, I don't think behaves like that at all. So I think what actually happens is I would essentially aver that there are maybe a quarter of a million, maybe half a million households in London who, in some sense, would like to move out. Weirdly, the very fact that the price of their house is going up is preventing them doing so. And there might be two reasons for this. One, they're frightened of missing out on future gains. And two, they're terrified that if they do move out of London, they'll never be able to move back again. So there's a lot of emotion going on. It's not just about the price of oil, it's about their lives. We tend to look at property, for example, in a completely different way to the way we buy cars. I mean, most of us probably bought property by going, how much can I borrow? How much can I add to that as a deposit? Adding the two together and going, I'm looking for houses at that price point. Now, interestingly, we didn't do that when we bought a car. Uh, You can see the same thing. It's sometimes called, by the way, the fence paradox, which is in some cases when you set a limit the natural tendency of human beings is not to stay away from it. It's rather like some people treat a speed limit on a road as a target, not a maximum. And in the same way, if you look at student loans, for example, the maximum loan amount is, I think, if I'm right, 9,200 a year for three years. Surprise, surprise, practically every university course Mm -hmm. lasts three years and costs £9,200 a year. It was intended, the assumption of naive people in government was that there'd be lots of low-cost alternatives to the student loan and people would only need to borrow six or eight and be able to do a one-year course. 
the reality is that the fence paradox seems to have kicked in. And what's actually happening is that everything that isn't at the maximum cost somehow marks itself out as second best. And if you look at the, you were talking about cars there, and that we don't buy cars on the same, the same the way, way that we, we buy, buy property. property. Yeah. And how much of that is to do with branding and advertising? Well, a large part of it is that cars depreciate, and we assume that housing goes up in yeah. value. But a large part of it, when you think about it, is that a house is the only area where a bank will allow us to take a large bet. So if you go into your local bank and say, I want to borrow half a million pounds to buy a house, the bank will have an interesting conversation with you. If I went in and said, I want to borrow half a million pounds to buy IBM shares, or even to start a business, to be honest, they'd almost certainly treat me with a huge degree of scepticism. And so most people realise that over-betting on the property market is their only legal way of having an assured lottery win in their lifetime. And so whereas it would be much more sensible for all of us to have slightly less exposure in property and slightly more in other forms of investment, the very fact that banks will lend you money on housing at a far freer level than they will on anything else undoubtedly distorts behaviour there. Just as I think educational behaviour is distorted. If you went to young people and said, you can borrow £27,000 for anything you like under these terms, very, very quickly you discover that courses didn't last three years Mm. and didn't. But because the money is there uniquely to spend on education, a lot of people, I think, should take the money and actually not spend it on education. They should start a business. Well, we might have a lot more entrepreneurs. Travel around the world. Whatever, you might have a lot more entrepreneurialism. I think a lot of people might gain or simply say, I'm going to have to do a one-year course and I'm going to save a year back for later in life. But the way in which the money is apportioned grotesquely distorts behaviour. It's interesting that you're fascinated by decision-making and what makes us respond mm. and react to certain stimuli and indeed persuade us to, to buy a brand. And there are some very counterintuitive examples that you cite in your book. One that stood out for me was Red Bull, which is really popular, even though everyone dislikes the taste. Talk us through how that's possible and and, and what the thinking was there. I'll be able to be honest with you. I can only explain this in retrospect. Mm. If Red Bull had come to me with the proposition they had when they launched outside Thailand, Mm -hmm. I would have said, look, so they were a Thai company to start with. It was a Thai invention, yeah. and then someone bought the export rights, essentially, and, and the brand rights. Mm-hmm. And the bizarre thing was, here you had a very expensive drink in a very small can, and everybody hated the taste in research. What I mean about butterfly effects is one contextual change, mm-hmm. by which I mean people don't actually buy things, they buy what they mean. And there's a really important distinction. Because what something is can be measured in scientific terms. What something means is a product not only of what something is, but its context, how it's presented, what you compare it to. So in the case of Red Bull, a disgusting tasting drink, if you'd launched it straight against Tango, for example, or Fanta, uh, would have failed. You know, if you put it in a bottle and sold it that way, it would have been a catastrophe. When you sell something as having medicinal or psychoactive powers, strangely, a rather weird taste isn't a downside, it's a bonus. In fact, far earlier, the people who sold a drink called, you probably don't remember it, called Sonatogen, it does still exist, which was a tonic wine, they deliberately added a chemical which wasn't very nice because they said if you wanted people to believe something had medicinal properties, it had to taste slightly weird. Mm. You know, it's a reason if you bought Nurofen and it was flavoured purely with black currants, it would actually diminish the efficacy of the Nurofen because the placebo effect would have been damaged by the fact that it tasted so nice. You have this very strange thing that just as a Chinese restaurant 
with very rude staff in the right framing, in the right context, can be a bonus, not a disadvantage. The same goes for, say, a drink. The small can makes it seem very, very potent. If you think about it, often when you want pills to seem potent, you don't make them bigger, you make them smaller. Mm. When you're given two of those tiny Sweetex-like pills, you go, these must be really effective because they're so small. And the high price, of course, massively affects the perceived potency. I mean, painkillers are more effective if they're more expensive. You've mentioned the placebo effect, and I'd like to talk a bit more about that in the context of branding and advertising. I mean, you clearly believe that the placebo effect works, and I know scientifically it's been proven to work. It's complicated. It seems to work very strongly in in areas of... I'm not claiming for a second, and I ought to be very clear here, I'm not claiming for a second that it will be decisive or instrumental in Mm. curing cancer. Okay, In areas like chronic pain, where some part of the condition is psychological in any case... I think it can be extraordinarily powerful. So talking about something mild like a headache, do yep. you really believe that if you go into a shop, into a chemist, and you see some high-priced, well-marketed and branded ibuprofen that we all, that we all red. know? Nobody does okay. that, but they'd be more effective if the pills were red. Um, yes, that, it would that, be more that, effective. That, 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 yeah, the, the, the chemist's own brand that is exactly the same makeup, and we know it's exactly the same chemical makeup, is not as effective in curing your headache. The point about a headache is a headache is partly subjective. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to use what I'd call the dark arts and smoke and mirrors of marketing and alchemy in solving what you might call subjective problems that reside in the head seems to me valid. Now, as I said, I'm not comfortable uh, with some of the claims for, say, homeopathy or other forms of medicine Mm -hmm. that are made across the board. In certain conditions, I think it can be incredibly potent because undoubtedly, I think, Placebos are more effective, painkillers are more effective if they're branded, and they're more effective if they're well-packaged. I'm probably the only person in Britain who complains that you can't buy expensive aspirin anymore. And my argument is, half-jokingly, look, I don't have a 68p headache, I've got a £3.20 headache. (laughs) And I would actually feel that the aspirin were more efficacious if they cost more. The placebo effect's interesting because if you look at what science tries to do, it doesn't try to exploit it it essentially tries to ignore it. Now, in some areas of medicine, we should probably be trying to maximise it. In the same way, what economics does with human emotion is it doesn't try to understand it. It effectively pretends it away. And so this has very important implications for something like making uh, environmentally friendly, say, washing powders or detergents. Now, just as uh, neurofen for period pain will be more effective for period pain than regular neurofen, even though the ingredients may be chemically identical. In the same way, I hate to say this, but it's true, if you put very kind to the environment on a washing powder, not only will we assume it's less potent and therefore probably use more of it, which is problem number one, but two, we will be less impressed with the results, even if the results are objectively identical. It's very strange. I'm the first to agree that this is strange, but we haven't really evolved objective senses as humans. Uh, In evolutionary terms, broadly speaking, if evolution has to make a trade-off between 5% extra fitness at the price of 20% less accuracy, it'll make that trade every time. Our perception of the world is heavily laden with presumptions and comparative perception. It isn't objective like a scientific instrument. Now, that means that when you're designing for people, my view is you should design for what they perceive, not design for what is. 
and this is new by the way, the Greeks understood this, I mean the Parthenon doesn't have a straight line on it, practically. The reason is it's not designed to be straight, it's designed to look straight, I think when perceived by a human standing downhill. And so a lot of the strange curves in the pillars, for example, are there to correct the imperfections of human vision, fascinatingly. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about the environmental issue, because I wonder from your perspective then, how do you persuade people yep. to buy household products, for example, that are more environmentally friendly, if that is, if that is the goal, if that is yes. a, a, a governmental goal, if that's a, you know, a, as a nation, if that's what we want, when, as you say, people do think that perhaps if they really need to get something clean, they need to use a very strong bleach course, and not an course. environmentally friendly one, which might be nice but not as effective. So one... Solution which I find perfectly okay, now you can debate this afterwards, is to produce products that are much kinder to the environment but not to tell people. Mm. And you might argue that, for example, dishwasher tablets achieve this. So if you simply produce a concentrate, let's say it's a dishwasher gel or powder or liquid, if you claim it's environmentally friendly, people will tend to use more of it and they'll be less impressed by the results. If, on the other hand, you reduce the quantity of chemicals used and the quantity of packaging, but you put the same ingredients in an intricate tablet. So as I said, one with a red ball in the middle and two separate chemicals in a kind of yin and yang formation around the outside. A natural human instinct is to see intricate things as more potent than simple things. And therefore, you're actually counterbalancing the lower volume used by degree of visible complexity. Another way would be you might add a degree of difficulty weirdly. Now again this is counterintuitive. What you might do is you might get people to mix two separate chemicals together. Those of you who remember Araldite will remember that we, we all surmised that it must be a pretty damn good glue because you had to keep the two tubes separate and then mix them. And I think the extra effort entailed in Araldite also added to our perception of its general potency. And so I would argue that people are going to use smoke and mirrors in perception anyway. There's a wonderful example from, I think it's Alfred Korzubski, where he goes to his lecture hall. He's a man famous for saying the map is not the territory. And he goes to his lecture hall and starts feeding them biscuits from a brown paper bag. And they're munching away very happily. And then suddenly he takes the packet of biscuits out of the bag and reveals that they're dog biscuits. Picture of a dog on the packaging. From eating perfectly happily and contentedly a second beforehand, I think one of the people ran out to vomit. Uh, about five people retched into their hands and about four people just ran out of the room to spit them out on the grass. And he makes the point that, you see, we don't only eat food, we also eat words. The way we perceive things, we think we can separate what we hear from what we see, from what we feel and so forth. We can't. I mean, there are various experiments. Anybody who's on YouTube can Google the McGurk effect to look for an example of this. But actually, our perception of things is hugely dependent on the context in which we see them. I mean, to give a very simple example, which I think all of us have noticed, after you've had your car cleaned or valeted, weirdly, it kind of drives better. <laughs> it's kind of quieter, smoother, it accelerates better. Um, so a, lo a whole load of factors about which haven't been influenced by the cleaning at all, what that is, is the effect of the cleaning on our perception. Your book is subtitled The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make yep. Sense. So I'd like to talk about some ideas and examples of brands that are, are really difficult to sell and how you've managed, to how advertising has managed to make them a lot more palatable. I mean, a lot of things don't make perfect sense. I mean, I must admit, had you come to me and said, 
1948, we're going to launch Coca-Cola big time in the UK. I would have been able to give you 10 reasons why it wouldn't really work. You know, uh, we've never had prohibition. Um, ice in the UK is treated like a luxury good and Coke without ice doesn't taste so good. Uh, we're a big boozy country. We're also a big tea and coffee drinking, or particularly a tea drinking culture back then. And we've got a crap climate. So the need for a really good cold drink isn't all that pressing, except for maybe one month. Yeah. And yet, while not as popular as in the US, Coke here is pretty popular. Dyson, for example, you would have said to Mr. Dyson, had you been a logical person, you would have said, well, look, the vacuum cleaner is really a distressed purchase. We only buy one when our existing vacuum cleaner conks out. Maybe we buy one when we first move into a non-rented accommodation. But that's about it. That's the market for vacuum cleaners. And essentially, we buy, you know, a tolerably high quality vacuum cleaner. But no one here is looking to spend five, six hundred pounds on one. And you would have told James Dyson to take a walk if you're a strictly rational person. However, occasionally what these entrepreneurs do, and part of their great advantage of being an entrepreneur is you don't have to defend your decisions to a large committee. You are allowed to be whimsical, you're allowed to act on instinct. Now, in some occasions, of course, this leads to disaster. We tend to notice it when it succeeds. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time it doesn't. There are a lot of products launched in Silicon Valley all the time which are downright stupid mm -hmm. and which deservedly fail. But what is interesting is that every now and then someone stumbles on some psychological thing. I think with Dyson, much more than the engineering and the baglessness, I think it was the fact that the thing was transparent. I think if you'd launched that thing as a beige, opaque vacuum cleaner, I think it would have had the same objective advantages as before, baglessness and cyclonic technology, but without the kind of system one thrill of watching the dirt accumulate, I'm not sure we would have lambed out 500 quid for one. To be so you honest. think that just even though we know that yeah. inside every vacuum cleaner is a bag of dirt... The fact that you could see it, the fact that you could see how yeah, there was, a, there was an emotional reward to vacuuming for the first time, wasn't there? Because really, when it was in a bag, you basically trundle the thing over the floor, not really being aware of how good it. Maybe using a little bit of auditory feedback, you know, occasionally when a coin or a, a paperclip whizzes up the tube, but you didn't have much feedback to what a good job this machine was doing. Um, strangely, the Dyson, by making the tank transparent, a brave decision, by the way, because do people actually want to see that mm -hmm. stuff, seemed to be a complete game-changer. Another example I cite in the book is Uber, where I think their principal piece of psychological alchemy was the map. That waiting for a cab or waiting for a car to arrive when you can see it moving towards you is inordinately less stressful and frustrating than being told, yep, the car's here in 15 minutes, and then essentially being helpless. I think we'd rather wait 15 minutes for a cab when we knew it was going to be 15 minutes than wait 10 minutes for a cab in a state of uncertainty. Mm. It also does have the problem as well, though, that if you can see that stopping or turning around, it makes you incredibly frustrated as well. Uh, so the product can, has to though, work. You tell a story it? to yourself, which is, oh, look, he's stuck at those traffic lights. Mm. I'll have another pint. Mm. Whereas if your minicab fails to turn up, you're in a state of complete funk. So, I mean, he, funnily enough, the, the partner, um, the co-founder, the less famous co-founder was Canadian, and his insight for the, the whole idea of Uber was watching Goldfinger, where, if you remember Goldfinger, Bond chases Goldfinger with a tracking device in his DB6, and it's essentially a map with a dot in it. And he, one afternoon watching this in Canada, suddenly decided that's how it should be when a cab arrives. 
And I think it makes a huge difference. I, th I think that dot matrix displays make a huge difference to our experience of waiting for a train. Now, a purist engineer would say the only way to improve the railways is objective. You have to have faster, longer, more frequent trains. I'd go, look, actually, if you make the waiting less annoying, stage one of that might be putting accurate display boards. Stage two might be Wi-Fi on the platform. Stage three, as you have on the Lisbon Underground, might be a really good coffee shop on the platform. To be absolutely honest, you know, if I've got a table, a toilet and Wi-Fi, I don't really mind spending 20 minutes anywhere, provided it's within, you know, survivable temperature. Part of the question is, do you look at time as a physicist looks at time, which is that 20 minutes is twice as long as 10, or do you look at time as a human actually perceives time, which is it flies when you're having fun? What I'm saying is that magic is impossible in economics, it's impossible in physics, but it's perfectly possible in psychology. You know, there's no Newtonian equivalent for time flies when you're having fun. That's a perceptual variable, it's not an objective one. Nonetheless, if the purpose of the problem you're trying to solve is to improve the state of human experience, the perceptual variable is right and the objective one's wrong. You've also got some very interesting insights into our unconscious emotions, like why we might make an unnecessary visit to a doctor's surgery, yeah. but we never go to a dentist unless very we really need to. Why is that? Um, you only go to the dentist at moments of absolutely high dudgeon, unless you're assiduously following your appointment. It's because I think there's a big difference because we're not frightened that our teeth are going to kill us. We're frightened that they might be painful, but we don't think they might be fatal. I would say a very large proportion of visits to the doctor, if you asked us, and you remember we've always got a rational explanation for everything, but that may not mean it's true. The real why of why you go to the doctor, and by the way, this is doubly true if you're a parent of young children, is really for reassurance and blame avoidance, not for treatment. You know, one of the things is if you have flu that won't go away, you start to worry that you might be dying. What's the best thing a doctor can do under those circumstances? One, give you antibiotics, which is a bad thing because it probably won't help with flu and it will lead to antimicrobial resistance and all manner of other sideline problems. B, I think the best thing a doctor can prescribe is actually a short sentence, and it's, there's a lot of it about. The second you know that the illness you have is a common bug that's going round, okay, 90% of your anxiety goes. The best thing a doctor can say to you is, yeah, there's a lot of it about. The worst thing a doctor can say is, this is an extraordinary case, unique in the annals of medical history. I've never seen anything like this before. That's when you brick yourself. I think a certain number of visits to the doctor could be precluded, unnecessary visits, if we said... There are treatment visits and there are reassurance visits. If you had an answer phone message which said, if you have these following symptoms, mm -hmm. it's almost certain that you have this flu that's going around. Mm -hmm. What we recommend is this. Mm -hmm. I think 20, 30% of people hearing that message would go, okay, so I haven't got Ebola after all. It's just this flu and I can essentially relax. Likewise, what can we do? Essentially, I'm taking my children to the doctor or even worse to A&E because... If I didn't take them to A&E and it turned out to be something serious, mm -hmm. meningitis, for example, or whatever, I'd never forgive myself. And what I'm doing is I'm avoiding the risk of having the tiny risk, but nonetheless the measurable risk of having to live with a lifetime of guilt and blame. And so I'm not really taking the kid to the doctor to be treated. I'm taking the kid to the doctor to avoid that terrifying outlier 
possibility. Here, I think we have to ask questions like, actually, the way in which you maybe should respond to those two different motivations should be different. There are some fascinating other findings in medicine, by the way, one of which I love, which is that if you present yourself to A&E, let's say at the weekend when it's busy, and typically within about half an hour you'll be seen by a triage nurse or someone similar who will then refer you to the specialist for your relevant condition and you might have to wait an extra two hours for that or more. If after you've seen the triage nurse you're moved through to a different waiting room you are completely happy because you're making progress. If the triage nurse sends you back to wait for two and a half hours in the original waiting room, you're livid. A purist might say, by creating two living rooms, you're essentially hacking people's perception. And my argument is, since the purpose of this exercise is to prevent people becoming angry, anything that prevents them becoming angry, even if it doesn't involve objective expenditure on medical provision, can be counted as success. I'd like to move on and talk a bit about uh, how consumerism is changing. Do you think consumerism is changing? I mean, clearly the way advertising is presented is changing hugely as technology changes. Uh, My answer to that would be yes and no, which is I don't think the prime human motivations change all that fast. Mm -hmm. I think those instinctive motivations, i.e. to be respected, not to die single and alone, all those kind of things, I think are pretty universal and pretty unchanging. The goods we buy, however, in order to satisfy those needs, may change significantly with time. One of the things I think we're seeing is dematerialization. One of the reasons Americans are spectacularly materialistic is they've got really big houses. And actually, if you don't live in New York, you've got a basement as well. You've not only got a three-car garage, but you've got a basement the size of your house. Also, you notice that status goods change according to what's affordable. I mean... I worry about this a little bit because what you might say of Gen Y or Gen Z, and by the way, the generations aren't that different in themselves. In personality terms, they're not that different. What they're doing is they're behaving differently in response to different circumstances. When I was, let's say, 20, property was affordable, but holidays in Australia were really expensive. And you now have a more or less a reversal of this. So you get something which would have been, if you think about it, in the 1930s, completely bizarre. Someone who's been on holiday to Australia twice, but who doesn't own a house. You know, in the 1930s, that would have seemed like a completely surreal thing. You do see an urban thing where people are less and less prone to buying cars. I think that particular trend is less universal than we may think. You know, if you live in a rural area or if you live in a suburban or provincial area, you still want a car. Cars we buy are changing. So we're changing to electric and hybrid cars. Yes, that will change. And that's interesting, by the way, and this is really important. When we look back at successful innovation... And bear in mind, innovation isn't the same as invention. Invention is when you invent something. Innovation is when you actually successfully introduce it to the marketplace to an extent where it replaces... And there's a take-up. There's a take-up. Willing take-up. We tend to look back on the world's really significant inventions as if, as soon as they were invented, consumers could see how brilliant they were and adopted them immediately. So let's take a few things. The passenger lift or elevator. Vaccination. Uh, Third one would be electricity. Fourth one, the electric car. We tend to assume, looking back, that Jenna basically says, I've come up with this vaccination for smallpox. Everybody goes, high five, Edward. Right, we're all vaccinating our kids. In fact, 
He basically spent the rest of his life campaigning against interest groups who are trying to discredit the practice, overcoming people's fear that, of course, because the practice was not biblical, it was therefore wrong. The idea that injecting something from a cow disease into a human seemed deeply perverse and, and dubious to people. Otis travelled fairgrounds effectively with a model lift showing how when you cut the cable it dropped a couple of inches and then stopped. And he had to do that because... I mean, I've still got friends who won't go in lifts, by the way. I mean, you know, I, I consider them a bit wacko, but I still have friends who are too frightened to go in lifts. Now, if you think about it, everybody at one stage was too frightened to go in a lift. The idea that there was this 300-foot shaft beneath you and only a bit of string holding you up was frightening. Electricity, you had to overcome enormous fears that, when, you know, if you left a plug switched on, the electricity would leak into the room. Microwave ovens actually came up against a huge amount of kind of scepticism and suspicion. What you discover is nearly every major invention has required an extraordinary degree of marketing, much more than you would have expected. So there are sales manuals for, for example, the telephone and for electricity. What's funny is that they're actually sometimes comical because so there's a wonderful piece I think from the Irish um, it's the Dublin Corporation trying to encourage people to have electric kettles I sympathise as a former copywriter that you basically look for anything good you can find to say about something but two of the comments about electric kettles are charming because they never happen so one of them is rather than leaving the kettle on the stove I leave it here on the table between us so when we need to top up the teapot I don't have to walk over to the stove now I don't know anybody who does that mm. the second thing the the as it was of course in 1919 housewife said was and Every evening I take my kettle upstairs to bed with me so I can make a fresh pot of tea in the morning. Now, when the first electric kettle came in, these were perfectly logical new possibilities once you'd actually freed your kettle from the stove. In the event, whatever is, nobody adopted them. So I'm fascinated by video conferencing. And the great problem with video conferencing, I think, is because it was given away free, not enough money was spent marketing in it. And when it, well, I think it's a miracle thing. I think we're talking about electric cars. Now, actually, shouldn't the government be promoting video conferencing as actively as it promotes electric cars? Because actually, the, the, the greenest journey of all is no journey at all. Is a problem that, as you say, because they weren't marketed well, no, at the beginning, well, course, everyone remembers those dreadful video oh, conferences where you couldn't get anybody on the other no, end no, of the line. No, 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 it was a catastrophe, and, I agree. And so, actually, of course, that was, if you think about it, it was true of the car. Mm -hmm. So we forget this because we're used to getting into a car and it starts. To be honest, the first 20 years of motoring was really kept going by novelty seeking rather than by pragmatic, measurable improvements over the horse. So my father used to say that you know, he drove down, I think, from South Wales from Edinburgh in the day once in the 1930s. And the fact that you completed that journey without incident, I, you hadn't had a puncture and you hadn't had a breakdown, was cause for comment. So the reliability was pretty low in the very early days. In the 30s, I think it got much better. But actually, every new idea has depended for its adoption as much on marketing and salesmanship. Uh, Edison was an extreme salesman, I mean, to an unpleasant degree. He encouraged um, the electric chair. He was a desperate attempt to make the electric chair powered with the rival's alternating current to discredit it as dangerous. That was an extraordinary thing. Actually, with the electric car, I would argue the real problem that remains is psychological, the range anxiety. I would argue it's, it's slightly trivial and silly. I think that the fact that if you make a 250-mile, 300-mile journey, you might have to stop for half an hour or an hour, I would argue that's a healthy thing to do in any case. 
if you look at your day and mine, I don't know if you have a car. Do you have a car? I do. Yeah, okay. Probably on all but about eight days of the year, it travels no further than about 30 or 40 miles. Mm -hmm. Fair guess? Yes. Yeah. So my my car mostly goes to a station and back again. Mm -hmm. The idea, actually, that we're frightened of having an electric car because of range anxiety is one which I think has been created by early sceptics when the range really was terrible. And I think it's been magnified by the medium. I think it's a delusion. And I think the principal obstacle to buying electric cars now is a completely irrational fear. It could be solved quite easily with simply, you know, a multiplier of 10 in the number of charging points. Looking forward, a lot of the environmental issues that we face, we really need to spend more, it sounds like, on marketing, on yeah. branding them I, to I, I think get the fact over that this. video conferencing has never really been promoted precisely because it was given away for free with the internet. Yeah. I also think they made a terrible mistake, which is they sold it as the poor man's alternative to air travel, yeah. not as the rich man's phone call. If the only person in your company who had a video conferencing suite had been the chief executive, pretty soon everybody one step down would have wanted one of their own. Instead, they allowed them to be installed in the basement and the whole thing was stigmatised, really. And so I think that was a marketing failure. I think we can put it right. I think we should put it right because it seems to me it's an extraordinary uh, productivity boost. If you have a group of people who can use it well, and who are reasonably adept and clued up enough to buy a little bit of reasonable sound equipment. One, of course, it can actually solve uh, not only the transport crisis, it can help solve the housing crisis. Because the ability to work remotely, at least for several days of the week, is enormously facilitated by it. I mean, if, you know, if I were in government, I'd have a video conferencing minister alongside a transport minister. That's fascinating. When you look forward to look at how advertising and branding is going to change in the 21st century, do you see traditional advertising agencies as being under threat? Uh, No, I think they will have to reinvent themselves quite significantly, and I think they fail to do so. The reason I don't see advertising as a whole as under threat is because it's millions and millions of years old, by which sounds a very strange Mm. thing to Mm. say, by which I mean non-human advertising. Advertising in the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom is everywhere. Plants need to convince bees to visit, so they invented something called flowers. You know, a flower is, as I said in the book, it's a weed with an advertising budget. Uh, Coloured snakes, coloured insects, coloured beetles, coloured caterpillars all use coloration as a way of signalling something in advance, either to predators or possibly to prey. Okay? And so this kind of need to actually signal conviction in what you're doing... Very interesting question... For the nerdier of your listeners, why are ladybirds red and black when they spend most of their time on a leaf? You would think that green would be the kind of colour of the season. And the reason is that if you're a bird, you really don't want to eat a ladybird because it secretes a foul-tasting chemical from its knees when you eat it. Which is what a hell of a party trick, if you think about it. (laughs) But the interesting thing is, the reason the ladybird conspicuously does not camouflage itself is because it's essentially saying, I don't need to adopt camouflage because I've got a badass defence mechanism all of my own. And if you try and eat me, you'll discover it. Do you want to take that risk? No. So, no, the need for advertising, the need for signalling in business, in any world of incomplete information and imperfect trust. Now, bear in mind, economics assumes perfect information and perfect trust in its mathematical models. So it's assuming a world where marketing doesn't need to exist. And so the problem that causes is that those people whose thinking has been polluted by mainstream economics tend to see marketing and advertising 
not as a source of value creation, but effectively as a kind of cost of production to be minimised. It's a you know, necessary evil. It's a cost to be minimised. You know, the more efficiencies you can obtain, the better. I think that's completely the wrong way to look at it. I think you look at it as an opportunity to create value out of nothing. The fascinating thing there is that what ad agencies will need to do, I think, is they'll need to become more adept in behavioural science. And the other thing they'll have to do is they'll have to stop being so closely connected with simply bought media solutions. I think a lot of the solutions I'd like to propose you know, to listeners would be if you understand a little bit about behavioural science and you understand a little bit about the unconscious inferences that humans make about a business according to how it behaves, you can sometimes learn very, very inexpensive tricks, genuinely tiny little tricks, which make an inordinate difference to how people act. So share, share a couple. An example would be if you run a cafe, even if it's raining, even if in truth not many people want to sit on the pavement, put some tables and chairs out when you're open. And the reason is from 200 yards away, if we see a building with chairs and tables on the pavement, we immediately infer it's a place that does food and it's a place where, which is currently open. Because if they weren't open, they wouldn't be leaving their chairs on the pavement because people might nick them or the wind might blow them around. So I had an interesting case where a local cafe failed completely when it had heavy benches outside. But when new owners took over and placed aluminium furniture and a windbreak outside, it did very well. Now, it's not a perfect test, I'll admit that. The food was different, you know, the service was different. But it was highly noticeable to me that this cafe on a busy road, when it actually had furniture outside that essentially telegraphed to someone driving at 35 miles an hour, were open, that in itself could be business transformation. Now, yep, the chairs are an ad. But where, where it wouldn't be obvious is I'd say, look, leave the chairs outside even if it's raining because essentially they're doing a job which isn't just furniture. They're actually the best ad you can possibly have. And so tiny little things, for example, one thing that drives me insane is that very few call centres offer to call you back. They put you on hold. Now, the cost of a phone call is nugatory. I mean, it's trivial. My argument is if you offer to call someone back and you do... It entirely changes the perception of that relationship because you no longer feel like a supplicant. You feel like a customer who they actually deem worthy enough of a telephone call. The objective reality of that is trivial. The perceptual difference, I'd say, is enormous. And so going forward, younger people now who are much more who are, you know, digital natives through technology, do you think that they are... They're more concerned with privacy. They perhaps understand more. They feel they understand more perhaps about how advertising is placed and how it's trying to to, to use them. Um, Do you think... You're making an age distinction. Mm. Actually, there are... You know, my father's 88, but is pretty expert as an internet user, which, if you consider, he had no experience of computing until about 1998. Mm. Uh, He was born in 1930. Uh, You know... Um, so I, I, well, the one thing I wouldn't like to do but he, is... He probably, though, is used to watching advertisements on television and he's accepted that all his life and um, on commercial radio. What, and I think younger people know, now I, I, are I, I, not prepared to do that. Uh, be careful of this, because this might be what you might call a generational effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be a, you know, a, a, a case where an age cohort takes its behaviour from youth to middle age. I would argue slightly differently that when you have a job and you're slightly time poor. The reason I still watch television and you still watch television isn't entirely because of the age band to which we belong. It's simply because when you get home from work, 
there is a point at which you want to sit in a large armchair and basically point at a box and say, entertain me. But I don't watch any adverts. You only watch recorded television, not live, and you fast-forward through every ad. Exactly. The behaviour's much rarer than you'd think, partly because, of course, a hell of a lot of TV viewing is still live. Mm -hmm. Now, you work A, in London, and B, in the media, which means that your hours are borderline insane, which means that you have to record every programme anyway, because otherwise you'd miss a third of the episodes. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't like that. Okay. There's a huge number of people, of course. We're in that weird London mentality where we're looking essentially, we're broadly speaking, cash rich, time poor, and we're looking for ways to save time and spend money. 80% of the population is looking to do the opposite. I want to waste time and save money. And so it's very, very dangerous, I think, in a London bubble to make inferences about everybody else. But most children I know, most, most people under 18 don't watch terrestrial television on a regular basis, and they certainly don't watch it. No, but I didn't when I was 18. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a student, I watched nothing. So uh, you think that ITV and all, those, all, all, all uh, the commercial uh, uh, radio will still continue to thrive and uh, people will listen to ads, uh, traditional ads? One, of course, what we are seeing... I mean, I mean you've got to remember, OK, I'll be fair... Yeah, let's be honest here. You're never going to see the like again of... 1970s British TV, where you had a programme, and you you probably can't remember 321 with Ted Rogers, can you? No. Okay, now bear in mind that this was a quiz show which was completely incomprehensible to its entire audience. Nobody who watched it could ever understand what the rules were or what was going on. I remember watching it strangely at university one evening on the rare occasions I watched television with a bunch of astrophysicists, PhDs, and I said... Do you understand what's going on here? Not a clue, Okay, The principal entertainment of this quiz show with Ted Rogers was a £10,000 animatronic dustbin called Dusty Bin that effectively wheeled itself onto the studio uh, stage like a really, really crap version of R2-D2. Now, that had, on a Saturday, an audience of 22 million people. You are never going to see that again. However... Really, really good television will still achieve and obtain really large audiences. Game of Thrones is an example. Now, trust me, Game of Thrones is better than 321. I mean, even if you don't like it, even if you're not into dragons or magic, it's a hell of a lot better than 321. Obviously, um, patterns are going to change. It will be completely weird if people in a 200, 500 or infinite channel environment behaved exactly in the same way as people who had three... And then when I was a teenager, four. Channel four came on air. I can remember watching the first night. So those are going to change behaviours. The fundamentals, though, that a certain... Once you're of a certain age, particularly if you're in a relationship, a certain proportion of your time will be spent on a comfy chair asking a large screen to provide you with entertainment and distraction. I can't see that changing. I actually spoke at a TV conference where I said the biggest threat to television isn't digital, it isn't YouTube, it isn't ad skipping. The only really major threat is that some strange dictatorial regime gets in in the future and bans comfortable furniture. If you banned the sofa, okay, and demanded that everybody just had wooden stools, that would be a really big problem for TV. And so until that happens, until advertising that happens, safe. Until that happens, essentially, don't get me wrong, I, you know, I spend a lot of time interacting. Uh, I also watch television while I'm on the internet, as I think nearly everybody does. Radio, has, if you think about it, one of the things we wouldn't have predicted, this very medium we're on now. Yes, young people probably don't listen to live radio to the extent they did. My, my children don't. They listen to podcasts, though. 
And actually, audios had, if anything, a bit of a renaissance. So there are plenty of places for advertising to still thrive. Don't worry about that. Theatre. If you would have predicted anything, you would have predicted that um, uh, cinema would have killed theatre. Theatre's much more expensive than cinema. You can't have a decent car chase in the theatre. There are so many rational reasons I could give you why theatre should be dead by now. And yet, weirdly, okay, it's not as big as it was. Ticket prices are insanely high. Uh, Theatres seem to be full. So, as I said, the rational explanation, just because you can find a reason for something, this is not a bad way to sum up, actually, just because you can find a good reason for X doesn't mean X is true or X is right. And just because X, on the other hand, seems a bit flaky or unexpected, who would have predicted true crime podcasts becoming a thing? Uh, Who would have predicted Red Bull becoming a popular drink? Who would have predicted Starbucks becoming a popular thing in the UK? Nobody. So one of the things I'm saying is that if we only test an experiment in the areas which seem to make sense, we're paying a very large creative opportunity cost because the real discoveries often seem to take place in left field. Rory Sutherland, thank you very much. Thank indeed. you very much indeed. It's thank been a pleasure. You. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.